It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 7th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Ever find yourself sitting in front of the computer and suddenly the disk drive takes off like it's part of the Indianapolis 500? Maybe you wonder what's going on. Why is the disk drive running? You're not doing anything. Now, this could be a hostile application that's perhaps using your computer to send spam. Or maybe it's a worm damaging your files. Well, it's probably not either one of those. It's probably just a background indexing process or some other application that's just doing what it's supposed to be doing and minding its own business. But how do you know? Last week I talked about a utility called the Ultimate Troubleshooter, which gives a lot of useful information and advice. This week, another program that is both more robust in some ways and more Spartan in others. It's by SysInternals. SysInternals is a company founded by Mark Rosinovich, and he's a guy who can make Windows sing, dance, and play the banjo all at the same time. Rosinovich knows how to open the hood, take the engine apart, while the engine is still running, I think. Well, Microsoft acquired SysInternals a year or so ago, made it part of TechNet, and all of the Rosinovich SysInternals utilities continue to be available for free, but now for Microsoft. One that I particularly like is called the Process Explorer. When I ran it, I got a list of 83 processes running on my computer. That may seem like a lot. Now, some are pretty easy to figure out. As I looked down through the list, I saw Carbonite, LogMeIn, and iTunes. Those are easy. Carbonite's a backup application. LogMeIn is an application that allows me to log on to my computer when I'm somewhere else. And iTunes, of course, is, well, iTunes. Others may not be quite as easy to figure out. I found Setpoint, I found NKVMon, and JustSched. Well, I know what these are. I know that Setpoint is a mouse application. The NKVMon is a Nikon camera control program. And the third one is a Java engine updater. But what about Service Host, SVCHOST? It occurs time after time after time. And what about run DLL32 or PSI service? Well, the first one, service host, is what's called a generic host process. Windows uses this to run a lot of applets. And if you use a program such as this application from SysInternals, you're going to see a lot of instances of service host. Some instances may have several applets associated with it. It's okay. It's supposed to be there. The second one, run DLL32. That's another process that runs as part of Windows. It runs DLLs. Places uh, DLL, by the way, is a dynamic link library. It's just code from a program. Places the library code in memory, so it's essential. Now, the third one, PSI Service, that's one I hadn't seen before. That took a little research. That's the Protexis Copy Protection and License Management Software. It was installed by something, I don't know what at this point, some protected application that I installed. 
I don't know which one installed it, but it needs to be there, probably. It still needs a little additional research, but at least I know what it is now. Now, by default, when you run Process Explorer, it sorts all of the processes into what's called a system process tree, which shows parent-child relationships. A process may spawn another process that's called a child process. So the child process is shown directly below the parent, indented. Some processes, just like in real life, become orphaned. The parent exits. And in this case, the child process is shown instead of being indented, it's shown over on the left margin. If you hover the mouse over a process, you'll get a little bit of information about it. Not very much. If you want more information, you can right-click it. And from there, you can see that if you want to change the priority of a process, you can do that. Now, this isn't a power to be taken lightly. You can set the wrong priority on a critical process. And if you make a really critical process low priority, your system will all but die. So don't just randomly change the priority of a process. But it's from here that you can also drill down and see just about everything about a running process. You can see everything from threads and network activity to security, what environment variables it has, what kind of performance it has, and there's a very useful feature. There's the ability to look at a performance graph. Now, there are actually a couple of graphs. There's a performance graph for all processes, and if you look at that, it's going to show you what's happening with the CPU, how much of the CPU is being used, how much memory is being used, how much disk I.O. is going on. But each process has its own charts, and this comes in extremely handy. If you have an application you think maybe has a memory leak, you can watch a specific process over time to see if the memory keeps increasing. For example, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can take a look at Firefox. Now, I like Firefox. It is my default browser. But Firefox is not without problems. And one of those problems is a wicked memory leak. After Firefox had run for a few hours with nine windows open, I took a look at what was going on. And with Firefox in the background, doing nothing, just sitting in the background waiting for me to use it, it was using 48% of the CPU power. 48%. Worse than that, it was using almost 270 megabytes of RAM, and that number kept inching upward steadily. That's a memory leak. And to prove to myself that Firefox had a memory leak, in other words, that it didn't start by using all of that memory, I closed Firefox, started it up again, fired up Process Explorer, and what I saw pretty much told the story. After a small burst of activity, virtually no CPU time being taken, and this was again with nine windows open, memory 97.8 megabytes, so under 100 instead of 300. Despite the problem with a memory leak, Firefox is still my default browser. But if anybody tries to tell you that it is a well-behaved program, you can tell them that you know better, and you can also prove it. Process Explorer runs on any Windows 9 version, 95, 98, Runs on Windows ME, Windows NT4, Windows 2000, XP, Server 2003, 
and any version of Vista, also any 64-bit version of Windows for X64 or IA64 processors. You can think of Process Explorer as kind of a grown-up version of Task Manager. It has a lot more detailed information about processes, including a list of DLLs that are loaded and the system resources handles that happen to be open. If an application has a file locked and you can't figure out which application it is, Process Explorer's search feature will quickly reveal which one is responsible. Again, it's free. You can download it from Microsoft's website. You'll find a link to the Process Explorer from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Okay, class, take out a pencil and some paper. This is a small math test. What I'd like you to do, or take out a calculator if you don't want to do this on paper. If you have a calculator, plug in 850 and then multiply that by 77.1. The answer you got, I hope, is 65,535. That number is a magic number. I'll tell you why in a moment. But if you try that in Excel 2007, the result will be 100,000. 100,000. Not exactly 65,535. That's off by quite a bit, isn't it? And unfortunately, this is not an isolated problem. There are, in fact, 10,023 number pairs between 1 and 65,535 that produce the same incorrect answer. Microsoft is working to fix the Excel 2007 problem in an upcoming patch. Now, I said 65,535 is a magic number. It's an edge condition. It's a binary endpoint. It's X, F, 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 or a binary number. If you think of it as binary, it's 16 ones in a row. It's the largest 16-bit number, and that probably has something to do with the Excel 2007 problem. Now, what's interesting about this problem is that it seems to be more of a display error than a math error. When I was doing some testing, I tried comparing the result that looked wrong on the screen with the number 65,535. The math comparison, which used the number behind the cell, was accurate. Only the display was wrong. Now, before you start thinking that this then isn't a real problem, it is a real problem, because in Excel, some computations use the displayed value instead of the actual value that lives behind what's being displayed. This is certainly an embarrassing problem for Microsoft, and Microsoft is undoubtedly working long and hard to get it fixed. But it's important for Microsoft to remember, and I'm sure that they do, that it's better to take their time and get the fix right so that when they put a fix in place, they don't inadvertently break something else. It's been kind of amusing the past week or so as this uh, math problem or display problem became uh, apparent to more and more people. It's kind of fun to watch the Microsoft haters crawl out and say that they could probably do a better job. I'd like to see them try. I tried some nearby numbers. The problem also is apparent with the number 65,536, 
but it seems not to occur with number pairs for 65,534. With 65,536, there are 9,997 number pairs that fail. If you'd like to see a list of all the numbers that don't work, you'll have to head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website where you will see a list of all 10,023 numbers. They're in very small print. And even in very small print, it's an extremely long list. So what does all this mean? It means that there is a significant potential for error in Excel. But there's always a potential for error in Excel or any other application. You could select the wrong cells for a math operation. You could apply a wrong function. You could include a logic error in your calculations. Could be your fault. Could be the program's fault. That's why you shouldn't blindly believe results of any application. You want to be particularly aware of the potential for problems if you have any results, either final or intermediate, that approximate 65,535 and you're using Excel 2007. The good thing is that it ought to be obvious to just about anybody that something is wrong. If you expect a result in the 65,000 range, and the result is in the 100,000 range, almost double what you expected. A basic sanity check ought to find that. Stupid Spam of the Week time. This week's Stupid Spam has a companion fax. The fax isn't part of the same scam, but it is cut from the same cloth. It's kind of amusing to see some of these scams that started out as the occasional goofy postal letter decades ago, and became faxes, and then finally emails. Well, now some of them are back to being faxed again. I got a spam that claims to be from the United Nations, and it says that a fraud has been discovered in Nigeria. Imagine that. It seems that corrupt bankers are trying to divert my funds for their personal use. In other words, this is an attempt to sting somebody a second time, somebody who's dealt with one of these Nigerian scammer-spammers and has fallen for their trick and has probably sent them some money. Well, now they're getting a message from the United Nations that says, your money is going to be coming soon. And I'll bet you got to pay something for that somewhere along the line. My new friend at the United Nations writes with all the skills of a fourth grader, and really a slow one at that. I took the message and marked in yellow the most egregious dead giveaways that it's a fraud. The spammer actually got the zip code right for the United Nations. It's 10017, and that is the United Nations zip code. Except for that, the message is a train wreck. The facts that I saw, same approach complete with a variant of what looks like a good housekeeping seal of approval. And then there's a starburst on the near the bottom that I suppose is supposed to look like some sort of official seal. It claims to come from Sky Bank in Lagos, Nigeria. You'd think that these folks would find a way to provide a better email address than something at yahoo.com. My buddy at the United Nations wanted me to write to him, samwilliams001 at myway.com. Wouldn't it come from, like, un.org? And speaking of stupid, in nerdly news, the Department of Homeland Security has shot itself in the foot. It seems to be the gang that just can't shoot straight. 
They have effectively sent themselves this week a mini-distributed denial-of-service attack. And at the same time, they unwittingly revealed the names and email addresses of hundreds of security professionals. Nice going, guys. They accomplished this by sending an email newsletter that allowed recipients to use the Reply All feature. Apparently, a lot of them did, and the resulting flurry of messages topped the 2 million mark and effectively shut down the Department of Homeland Security's mail server. A user who probably ought to have known better replied to a Department of Homeland Security daily open-source intelligence report with a request for a change. Now, if you subscribe to any mailing lists, you probably know better than to do something that dumb. When you want to change something like that, you change it yourself following the instructions the list manager sent you. You don't send a message to the list. But then it got dumber. Instead of halting the message in its tracks... The Department of Homeland Security sent the reply to everybody. What caused people to be annoyed? And some of those people sent off responses to everybody, demanding to be taken off the list or flaming the first guy. Now, these are supposedly experts, the ones who are supposed to understand security, the ones who are supposed to protect us poor dumb folks out in the field. Apparently, the Department of Homeland Security, instead of using an application specifically designed for mailing lists such as this, used its own Lotus Domino server. Amateur mistake. And maybe crows aren't quite the amateurs we thought. It seems that crows can develop tools. So, can computer-carrying crows be too far behind? Maybe you heard this one on NPR's Morning Edition on Friday, or maybe you read about it somewhere else. Some scientists attached tiny cameras to crows, and when they watched the resulting video, they were a little bit surprised to find that crows are smart enough to use tools. They mounted these little cameras on 12 crows. The cameras had to be placed near the tail feathers, and because of that, they show a view through the bird's legs up toward its beak. The project showed crows making and using tools as well as moving those tools from one place to another so they could continue to use them. The cameras don't operate for the first few hours after being attached to a bird because the birds spend a lot of that time trying to remove them. The camera is attached to a small transmitter that allows scientists to track the birds and receive the camera's video signal. When the bird molts and the tail feathers fall away, the camera goes with them. But before that... It provides scientists with more than an hour's worth of video. Okay, that's not exactly computer stuff, but I found it fascinating. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to New Scientist magazine where you can read the full article and see a little video. I think that's a first. Crows. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 7th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.